the free will offering for our brother Annie Agbo. We'll keep open uh, this Sunday and anyone wanting to contribute to Annie's mother's funeral can uh, give a free will offering uh, this coming Sunday. Now we're going to read First uh, Samuel 2 verses 1 through to 10. First Samuel 2 verse 1 and Hannah prayed and said my heart rejoices in the Lord my horn is exalted in the Lord I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation no one is holy like the Lord for there is none beside you nor is there any rock like our God talk no more so very proudly let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are wed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Amen. Well, last week, if you remember, we looked at verses uh, one and two, and considered what God has done from the personal perspective of Hannah. Now, moving on this evening, we'll turn our attention to verses three through to eight. We'll spend the bulk of the time on verses three through eight. What God is doing generally in His work throughout history, and then verses nine and ten, what God will do ultimately when all of His plans. Come to fruition. So firstly, verses 3 to 8. Hannah essentially gives us, if you like, a few of the world which is distinctly biblical. I put that, I put it in that way uh, to begin with so that if you do lose your way through this little study this evening, you will have, well hopefully you'll have a bit of an, an anchor point. So uh, not only is God holy and powerful, as we saw last week from verses 1 and 2, but Hannah wants us to know in verse 3, which uh, you'll notice is a kind of bridge, it's a kind of a bridge verse. Hannah wants us to notice that the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are wed. Now in the same uh, that a chapter of Isaiah that we looked at, uh, last week, Isaiah was basically saying the same thing. Isaiah 40, verse 13, uh, quoting from the ESV, uh, quote, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, 
or what man shows him his counsel. Galatians 6 verse 7, we should not be deceived. Why not? Because God is not mocked. You know, we cannot hide anything from God. We're sitting here uh, this evening and God knows our hearts. God knows all about us. When Paul writes to the church at Rome, chapter 2, verse 16, he says of God that God will judge the secrets of men. How will he judge the secrets of men? By Christ Jesus. But God knows all our secrets. This is the real state of affairs. Even though at times we are tended to believe other than that, you know, maybe God doesn't see it. Maybe God isn't interested in this little thing that I'm involved in or whatever. Um, even though the world certainly doesn't believe it, that God will, you know, hold them to account, that God will measure their actions. Uh, the fact is, God will, verse 3, by this Lord God of knowledge, actions are wed. Do you remember, um, well, of course you would, Belshazzar? He discovered that rather abruptly, didn't he? In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar was having that uh, knees up with all his uh, buddies. You know, a thousand of his uh, hangers on or drinking wine using uh, all the materials that have been stolen from the, the temple of the Lord when the people of God were taken into Babylonian captivity. And uh, it talks about, you know, how they are... <coughs> Um, engaged in this debauchery and you know from the presence from the presence of the God of knowledge remember a hand was sent and that hand appears and writes on the wall and Daniel tells us in chapter 5 that Belshazzar was reduced to a, a quivering shaking mass of a human being and he calls for his sorcerers his astrologers his wise men he asks them look what is this on the on the wall and they're unable to do anything and then it's the the queen mum who comes in and says well you know Belshazzar your best hope is in uh, is in Daniel um, and of course Daniel as you know comes and speaks to Belshazzar and says let me tell you exactly what God has written. God has written this. And he has written this Belshazzar. In order that you might know. That you can't carry on like this. In order that you might know that. You know even though you think you're the big shot. You know that you think you're in charge. That you and your friends. Uh, can carry on the way you're carrying on. Uh, God has written this. So that you might know that you have rejected, you know, the idea of a living God. And I want, and God wants you to know that you can't carry on the way you're carrying on. And Daniel, it says, Belteshazzar, you have not humbled yourself, you know, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Remember when we looked at uh, Daniel, we were able to say, how did Belteshazzar know all of this? Because Nebuchadnezzar knew about it. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. Nebuchadnezzar would have told him uh, what had happened when he got too big for his boots. 
So Daniel says, uh, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of the house of the Lord have been brought out before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, you have drunk from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand your breath is. He knows. And you haven't honoured that God. And it's from his presence that this hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing, many, many tackle, parson. And the interpretation of the matter is, remember Daniel says, many God has numbered your days of your kingdom. He's brought it to an end. Daigle, you have wed, been wed in the balances and found wanting, whereas your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This, you see, friends, is at the very core of what the Bible teaches, that God will one day, in a final judgment, separate people from one another. Now, um, I'll draw back from that a little bit because I'm running ahead there. That's really the, going into the third point. But, um, you know, that, that is why God uh, sends his mercy from, from his word. That's why God sounds out his mercy from his word. That is why his, in his love he speaks out into our condition and, uh, and about our condition. That is why he uh, stops us in our tracks. That's why he arrests us in our foolishness. Because he is a, a God who, who cares and a God who, who is going to bring everyone to give an account. And he doesn't want these people to perish. But he wants us to know uh, the life that he's planned for us. So the hand from his present. Uh, his presence was sent. And as you read through to the end of Daniel chapter 5. It says that very night Belshazzar died. Okay. He, he's done and dusted. Been wet in the balances. Found wanting. Now, the balance of this section, having sounded out her warning, Hannah, back to Hannah again. The balance of this section is simply a catalogue of the ways in which God turns human estimates of significance and power upside down. If you want to just get a hold of that prevailing notion, if you look at the final phrase of verse 9, of uh, seconds, uh, chapter 2. If you look at the final phrase of verse 9. For not, um, it says, For by strength no man shall prevail. For by strength no man shall prevail. You know, not by might shall man prevail. No man or woman will eventually prevail as a result of their human and innate abilities. And so that's what she basically does here at the end of verse 9. It's just a, she just summarizes all that she has said thus far in this prayer. So if you look back at verse 4, 
It says the, the bows of the mighty are broken and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Now, if you're familiar with First Samuel, you know, you're not long into the book before we have, you know, that wonderful illustration uh, of this, you know, when the Philistines are sent packing, not because of the massive power of the Israelite army, but by two oxen and a cart and a box on the cart, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it goes into the, uh, the encampment of the Philistines, of the cities of the Philistines. Um, you, you know, they're, they're decimated by that. Um, and of course, you, you go further on into the book, chapter 17. Um, you know, you've got the Israelite army, uh, you know, standing, quivering, because the giant Goliath has come out. To, uh, to, to mock them and to taunt them. And what does God do? Well, God reaches down for a feeble, for a young boy. Uh, a young lad with a, a ruddy face, we're told, who had a sling and a few stones. And you, you see what he does. Hannah's praying here and he says, <coughs> she says, Those who stumbled are girded with strength. I remember how Saul says, you know, if you're going out to face that giant, you're better wearing my armor because if you don't, he'll kill you. And David tries on the, the armor, but you know, remember what happens? He stumbles. He stumbles and basically says, you know, this is ridiculous. And uh, he takes it all off again. And Saul says, uh, well, what are you going to do? And David basically says, I'll just do what I normally do. I'll go and get a handful of stones and we'll go from there. Um, I can imagine Saul watching him as he goes out the door of the tent, thinking he's a dead man. You know, get, get the undertaker to measure him for his coffin because he's history. Uh, but he's, you know, typical young lad. No stopping him. Wants to do it, let him go ahead. But what happens? You know, God takes the weak. He who was stumbling were in the armor of man. And God overthrows uh, the giant in the Philistine army. And notice verse 5. It says, those who were full have become beggars. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread and the hungry have ceased to hunger. The hungry have now been fed. Incidentally, as you read this song, it will make you think, obviously, of other songs. We noticed that it um, took us back to, to Miriam in Exodus chapter 15 in her song. Um, but, what, some 3,000 years further on, you have the Magnificat uh, by, um, sung by Mary in Luke chapter 1, 30, verse 46 and following. And Hannah doubtless knew that, or sorry, Mary doubtless knew that song of Hannah because she quotes from it. And so as she uh, recites the Magnificat in first, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 53, she declares on that occasion when her cousin Elizabeth, um, when she came into the house of her cousin Elizabeth, 
Mary says he has filled the hungry with good things. Exactly what Hannah said. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Uh, Luke one fifty two. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly from Hannah's prayer. That's exactly what Hannah is saying here. Verse 5, the barren has borne seven. Reference to herself. That God blessed her with several children. That the one who was, you know, having many children has become feeble. Is that a reference to uh, Penina and the state that she ended up in? But uh, basically emptiness has been replaced by fullness. Peace and security does not lie in prosperity. It doesn't lie in numbers. It lies in God who provides. As we were singing last week, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. And that's what Hannah was saying in verses 1 and 2. God is the rock. There is no God. There is no rock like our God. And he's the one we come before. He's in charge of everything. He's in charge of life. He's in charge of death. Verse 6 says, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. Now, that's a solemn, striking statement, isn't it? Because our society is focused on wellness. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be. But not to the extent where it's, you know, the be all and end all. Our preoccupation (coughs) with wellness is grounded in large measure in a few of the world which, you know, has us as the centre. And God should always be the centre. You know, we live in a society that wants to hide from death. Doesn't want to speak about death. Wants to deny its prospect. But when we think of death, or when we don't think of death, don't we ignore God? Don't we ignore the God that we have to stand before? Who weighs up all our actions? And we know that God will raise the dead. And uh, everyone will stand before him on the day of judgment. So God brings about our demise. He's in charge of life and death. He's the God who raises from the dead. And you get some uh, theologians say, you know, you don't get any reference to the resurrection in the Old Testament. That's nonsense. You know, Job was able to talk about the resurrection. We were singing that hymn tonight based on that passage in Job. Isaiah certainly centers on the resurrection. The Psalms replete with the resurrection as, uh, you know, Kings and Chronicles and Genesis, etc. And Hannah believed in the resurrection. He says, (laughs) he's basically saying here, you know, goodness gracious me, God raised me up. He raised me up from, look at me in chapter 1, look at me in chapter 2. You know, God raised up, raised up my mouth, my strength, my words, and one day he will raise me up from the dead. Mm-hmm. Just as he resurrected me, uh, you know, from a depressed position, from an afflicted position. He's the God who will resurrect me in body. And so, uh, you know, Hannah certainly, I think, would have been uh, raising her voice heartily. If she'd have been in her presence tonight, singing that, I know that my Redeemer lives. Why? Because he is the God who kills, and he's the God who makes a life. 
He is the God who raises us from our destruction. And verse 7, again, he makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. What's Hannah saying? She's saying, oh, oh, this poverty and prosperity, obscurity and popularity are in God's hands also. She's emphasizing the sovereignty of God in all things, that God determines, verse 8, who he, uh, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. You see, God's sovereignty <coughs> determines all of this. Thereby, in Paul's case, allowing him to say in the New Testament, I have learned in whatever state I'm in, to be content because Paul realized that whether he abounded or whether he was abased, the fact is that God is constant in his faithfulness. God will always be faithful to his promises. Now that doesn't make you know poverty something special and wealth something horrible. You know, it simply puts them in their place. You know, the God's in control of it all, you know, in relation to what we have materially. And Hannah, like Paul, writes, sings, and prays out of an unshakable conviction that God is in control. Is not what we need to hear in a world that seems to be out of control? And just secondly and briefly, and then we'll go to prayer, and I say we'll end up, uh, we'll conclude tonight about half eight because of the weather and the you know, heavy frost that's expected in the icy roads. The first is 9 and 10. And then we'll go to prayer. What will God do ultimately when all of his plans come to fruition? See what it says there in verses 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So what is Hannah saying there? As I said earlier, she's saying that, that there comes a day of separation. It talks about God guarding the feet of his saints. Those who have trusted in him, who have taken him at his word, God will keep them. But as for the wicked, they shall be silent in darkness. The adversaries, which is a parallel, parallelism for the wicked, they'll be broken to pieces. The faithful will be welcomed. There's a separation, there's division, there's a parting of ways. And the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. We're told he will give strength to his king. To his king. Now, we don't have a king at the moment in the sense that, you know, um, we can see that kingly rule, um, you know, ushering in righteousness right around the globe. Because we can still see, you know, the wars and the famines and the lies and the hypocrisy. We can still see the evil. Uh, we still see the last enemy, death, you know, taking people. And so we live in anticipation, don't we? 
Yet the king is on the throne. God is eternal. Of course he is. He is king of kings and lord of lords. So there is the now, as we've said before, there is the now and the not yet. You know, we're living in anticipation of the king coming, making everything new and ushering in that kingdom of everlasting righteousness. And in fact, the word that is used here in Hebrew for anointed is uh, the word Messiah. And this is the first time that it's used in connection with the king. He will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his Messiah. The Messiah who stepped down into the ashes of our world in order that he might lift us up to glory. And so it's all pointless towards the coming of the, the Savior at Bethlehem. As redemptive history unfolds, we continue to get these little pictures and these little cameos uh, in Scripture of the coming king. If there is a missing note of guess in some of our preaching and some of our thinking, it's surely the note of God's judgment and justice. Maybe we don't sort of major in that as much as we should. I know it's not easy to proclaim, it's not easy to hear, but it's absolutely central to the truth of the Bible. There's a day of judgment coming, and there's a separation. And those who are unsaved, you know, it's eternal darkness. Uh, those who are saved, it's uh, come and inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. But certainly, uh, as Paul says in Corinthians, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we should be persuading men. So the reality of this should always drive us to evangelism, should always drive us to proclaiming and sharing our faith with others who are lost and dead in trespasses and sins.